Good morning. Uh, welcome again uh, to Midtown 12 South live service. Uh, and welcome again, home churches. Thank you to our Midtown Home Church hosts who are having people in their living rooms and having people on their side porches and their driveways, uh, making this uh, a, a collective corporate uh, event as much as possible. And welcome to all the people who are joining online in some way. And welcome here to live, uh, live folks um, who are here to worship with us. If you've been kind of skipping around or uh, not as consistent listening to sermons, and you, you may have missed kind of our transition uh, last month or so we were doing a series called The Priesthood of the Believer where we were looking at God's declaration of His people from start to finish in Scripture that God's people have always been uh, called to be and, and intended to be and declared to be priests to the world. You are my priest. You shall be a kingdom of priests to the world. You shall be the people that take my goodness and my presence to the world. And so as the New Testament people of God, the church now, we, we take that identity because of Jesus and we say, okay, yes, this is still true for us. God has always intended for us to be priests to the world. So we looked at that idea for five weeks. And now we're taking kind of one step farther into that reality. We're, we're taking one step farther into that idea. And we're saying, okay, the declaration has been made. We are God's priests. God has called us to be a royal priesthood to the world. The question then now is, how then should we live? As priests to the world, male and female, how should we live to the world? We've been declared priests by Jesus, by God. Now then, as priests, how should we live? And so we're asking that question, how should we then live? How should priests then live? How should we carry ourselves? How should we uh, think? How should we act? Um, we're taking that, and, and the place where God's moral code is, is most clearly stated is in the Ten Commandments. But it wasn't simple enough for us at Midtown to just study the Ten Commandments. So we're doing kind of a, a hop, skip, and a jump. We are priests who are called into the obedience of the Ten Commandments. But we're actually going to study the Ten Commandments by studying a parallel story or a parallel encounter with Jesus in the New Testament. We just want to make this really complicated. Okay? So we're priests. How should we live? The Ten Commandments guides us. But we're not just stopping at the Ten Commandments because we fail at the Ten Commandments. How has Jesus redeemed us and redeemed us to obedience in the Ten Commandments and, and what they call us to? So with all that circling around, I'm about to read two passages. One line from the Ten Commandments, the commandment that kind of sets the tone and sets the trajectory for the day. And then we're going to read a story that helps us fully understand how to live into that commandment. Okay? So the first passage is from Exodus chapter 20. That's where uh, the Ten Commandments are given. This is the seventh commandment. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, says this. You shall not commit adultery. And then, skipping to an encounter with Jesus in the New Testament, this is from uh, the end of John chapter 7 and the beginning of John chapter 8, we get a story that will help us understand and add some color and meaning and beauty to this commandment. Starting in verse 53 of chapter 7, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this as a question 
They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's the word of the Lord. So, briefly, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Again, if, you were, if you've seen last week's, or were here last week, um, the, the commandment we studied was you shall not murder. It's literally just two words in Hebrew. Last week was never murder, and this week is never have adultery. Never perform or commit adultery. But we have to understand that buried within, buried beneath um, the commandment to never murder or to never commit adultery doesn't mean, hey, the line for this sin is way out there somewhere, like adultery is the end of this. You can get as close to that line as you want, but as long as you're not technically having an affair committing adultery, then you're good on obeying the heart of this commandment. That's, that's not how God's commandments work. He's giving the, 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 the you shall not, the never do this, and the opposite of that commandment is what's implied. So never murder, we looked at last week, is the commandment to always fight for life and flourishing, right? The opposite is what's implied. Never commit adultery, the opposite of that is you need to understand your sexual desires, your sexual uh, behavior, your, the, the, the affections of your heart that lead to those things, and, and not only never committing adultery, not only never crossing that line, but what does it look like to have a rightly ordered understanding of our sexual desires and our sexual acts? What does that mean? Like to fight for sex and its beauty and all of its, its wonder and its mystery, not get as close to the adultery line as you can. What does it mean to actually do the opposite of that? To understand how God designed this, rightly ordered sexual desires and practices is what this commandment calls God's priests to be about and to participate in. Rightly ordered sexual desires and practices. So as we come to the story in the New Testament, we see an encounter with Jesus from someone who was caught in the middle of breaking this commandment. Right? This is what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are, are throwing out. This woman is guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. And in this encounter, it's just, it's just a few verses. This encounter lasts you know, somewhat of eight or nine verses total of once this woman is brought before the scene. So it's just a few verses long, but it is so grand, so profound in its depth. So three major characters are on the scene. The Pharisees, the woman, and Jesus. We're going to look at uh, the Pharisees and their interaction with, with Jesus. We're going to look at the woman and her interaction with Jesus. And all, all the while, all the while, we're going to be looking at what is Jesus doing this whole time? What, what is in Jesus' scope this entire time as he's interacting with these two parties? So we're told in the opening lines that Jesus is in the temple courts. He's, he's at the, the, the height of religious um, um, geography for the, for the Jewish people. He's in the temple courts teaching, as he often did. In the middle of him teaching, he's interrupted by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they have dragged with them a woman. 
caught in the act of adultery, is what verse 3 says. When verse 3 tells us that this woman was caught in the act of adultery, it's not just the way that it sounds. That the, the phrasing of that verb, she was caught in the middle of it, literally means she was seized while doing it. She was caught and taken while she was having an affair. Very probable this woman is still naked, dragged into the temple courts in front of a crowd of people and Pharisees who are broadcasting her sin for all to hear. This woman is full of shame. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, literally, like, I mean, this is not the temple, but can you imagine, like, in the middle of someone teaching, crowds listening, someone busted in the door and dragged a naked woman with her in front of the teaching moment for all to hear. I mean, literally, like, imagine that moment of it happening right now. In fact, it's about to happen. I'm kidding. But we had to, just to take us there. Um, I mean, but seriously, can, th- th- that's, that's, the, that's the nature of what's going on. This is, this, is, this is a horrific moment. Can you imagine the tension? Can you even imagine the awkwardness of what, what the crowd is doing in the, in the, the height of the anxiety and, and this woman who is literally on display, fully exposed, naked and covered in shame? Can you imagine being dragged out for all to see in the middle of a church service while doing the act that you may be willfully participating in and guilty of doing, but the act that you would want no one to know about? This woman's sexual deviancy and her sexual brokenness is on full display for all to see. And before we get to the crowd's reaction later, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, the Pharisees in a minute, we'll, and we'll swing back to the woman at the end because she's who Jesus deals with at the end. But, but please hear me as we walk through this commandment, the, the never commit adultery, the have rightly ordered sexual desires and sexual practices. Please understand me as we're studying this woman, we are all sexually broken. And I do not care what your sexual past is or however you rate your sexual past. Everyone in the room is sexually broken. Some of us are sexually broken because of things that were done to us. Some of us are sexually broken because of the things that we've chosen to do. And some of us chose to do some very sexually broken things because of the sexually broken things that were done to us. And everything in between. It does not really matter who would maybe take the blame for your sexual brokenness, although that is important. The point is that at the end of the day, if you've grown up in this country, if you've grown up in this culture, we are sexually broken. We are sexually oppressed. In fact, many psychiatrists and therapists would say all of us, all of us have experienced sexual trauma on some level. Some of us are sexually broken and it manifests itself in utter apathy. Our our sexual desire and and sexual... um, selves are, have been so shut down, we're so afraid of it, we're, we don't know what to do with it, and so it's easier just to kind of power down that part of our hearts. Some of us, uh, our sexual brokenness and our, and our misconduct comes out in our over-desire and our acting out with our over-desire, and we run to it so easily to satisfy. And wherever you are on that spectrum and everywhere in between, there are parts of us that are so broken sexually that I hope, the point is not to dive into to all of that this morning, the hope is that you would be able to empathize with this woman. That however your sexual brokenness has been experienced, you would understand this is a mortifying instance for this woman. She's been dragged out in the middle of her act for all to see, completely naked, completely full of shame. 
And maybe what makes matters even worse, what, what pours shame buckets on her even more, is the fact that these Pharisees are just using her. They have no interest in actually caring for her, restoring her to justice, or anything. They're not trying to heal her broken marriage, which is clearly broken. All that these men are doing, we're told in verse 6, they're trying to trap Jesus in order to accuse and convict him. They don't care about her. She's just being used. She's being used by the Pharisees, and she's being used by the man that she was in bed with. Everyone in the story is using her. She's just a pawn in this game. So what's the game? What are the Pharisees trying to use this woman for? What's going on? Why have they dragged this woman out? Most scholars think the only way they could have caught her in the act, like literally caught her in the act and known when the act was going down, was if they had trapped her into it. Like maybe they were working with her husband who knew it was going on. Maybe they just knew she was a woman of the town. I don't know. But to actually catch someone in the act means they had to know when and where it was going down. And so they were fully aware of this plot and this plan. We are using this woman. We need her to go get Jesus. So what's the game? What are they trapping Jesus in? What is this woman being used for? Well, this woman who's been brought in front of them is clearly guilty of breaking the Jewish moral law, commandment number seven. We just read that. And the law of Moses says in other places that, uh, that it is possible for capital offense to be handed down for someone caught in the act of adultery. Now, you need to know it was very rare. In fact, many ancient um, rabbinical rabbi uh, um, commentaries would say that if a, if a Jewish community had someone um, stoned to death for an act of adultery, if they had one of those every seven years, then that community was considered a slaughterhouse. Like it was very, very rare for this to happen, but it was allowable in the Jewish moral code. The problem was, was that just like this woman is experiencing right now, um, it was hard to catch people in the act, right? Because this is an act that's done in secret. And in order to be convicted in Jewish court, you had to have two witnesses to the act. So it's very, very difficult to actually pin someone down on this, but all that to say, the Jewish law actually did, she is caught red-handed. She is guilty of breaking the code. So Jesus, this Messiah of the Jews, here's the first part of the conundrum. Here's what they're trying to trap Jesus in. Are you going to conform to Jewish orthodoxy? She's guilty, Jesus. Are you going to conform to the law that our forefathers passed down? Are you going to actually submit to the law of Moses, which is what built this whole community and this whole religious system? Are you going to actually stand on the law of Moses? If you're the Messiah of the Jews, where do you stand with the Jewish history and Jewish orthodoxy and Jewish conservatism? Jesus, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women, they say. But stoning her, they know, stoning this woman publicly would have incited a riot because you couldn't hand down capital offenses without Roman permission. We see this in the crucifixion of Jesus, right? The Jews couldn't actually um, kill someone. They couldn't actually stone someone and pass down capital offense. But Jesus, if you tell us that we're, you're standing on Jewish orthodoxy and we follow that out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to disrupt a lot of things. That's a dangerous choice, Jesus, but how are you going to handle that? But on the other side is this conundrum. For Jesus. Jesus, if you do condemn her, if you do stand on the law of Moses, if you do conform to orthodoxy, I thought you were full of mercy. I thought you called the sinners to come to you. I thought you forgave sins. I thought you called the weak and the lame to come and find mercy with you and find pardon with you. I thought you forgave sins. 
So if you let her go, then you're not conforming to Jewish orthodoxy and you can't be the Messiah of the Jews. But if you actually want to follow that out, you're going to cause a riot in the streets. So what are you going to do, Jesus? We've got you. So here we have the dilemma. If he condemns her, he will keep the favor of the orthodox, but he will certainly incite a riot. But if he lets her off the hook, he will win the favor of the progressives and will certainly be guilty of breaking the very law of Moses which defines the Jewish people. We have conservatives and progressives on the table. Can you relate? Can you imagine the tension that is being felt in this very moment where both options are on the table and now they're saying, hey Jesus, we've got you. And remember, verse 6 tells us, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we're told they were there to trap and accuse Jesus. We're in a courtroom, you guys. This is a courtroom. This is the accusers. This is, this is, the, this is the, the deposition of Jesus. This is them coming after Jesus, trying to trap him and him not being able to get out of it. And the way that they want to have him is by, hey, when you give a verdict on this, Jesus, this woman's here and you know she's guilty, but you know all the dynamics, you know the dilemma. When you give a verdict, your verdict will be how we will judge you. You are on trial, Jesus. You're on trial in front of everybody. And now as the judge, Jesus, we're going to judge you. We will judge you by your verdict. They've baited this woman and caught her in the act, and now they've baited Jesus and are trying to catch him in the act. So what is Jesus going to do? What does Jesus do? Second part of verse 6, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I'm sorry, Jesus, there's a naked woman in front of you, and everybody's watching you, and everybody's watching what's going on. I don't think this is the time to be doodling. What in the world are you doing, Jesus? What is going on? Why did you just bend down to start writing in the sand? This, this is, this, the pressure, right? The pressure cooker is building. Jesus, there's a dilemma. You need to say something right now. And he bends down and starts writing in the sand. So what did he write? Well, there's lots of theories. Some people think he was writing out certain Old Testament passages that would have, you know, accuse the accusers for how they've done this, and we'll get to that in a minute. Some people think he was writing out his verdict, writing out what he was about to say before he said it. There were judges that did that in those days. They would write down their verdict before it was read. Some people think that he was just simply writing the Ten Commandments. We don't know. We don't know what he was doing. The Bible doesn't tell us. But regardless of what he was drawing, Jesus bends down and starts drawing, and they are livid with him. Verse 7 tells us that they persist. They kept questioning him. Jesus, what do you say? What is your verdict? What are you going to say about this woman? But Jesus doesn't fall into the trap of answering the stated question. See, Jesus has been put on trial, and he's been put on trial to see what kind of judge he is. Let's see this judge's verdict, and let's judge the judge by how he gives his verdict, and then we'll have him. And this is the judge's verdict. They've offered him A or B. Stone her or let her go. A or B, Jesus, what's it going to be? And this is what he says. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Now let me unpack that for a moment to show you the mastery of what Jesus just did here. Because see, they came to Jesus and they give, is it A or is it B? Which one's it going to be? And Jesus says, purple. He does not fall into the trap of answering their A or B question. 
he gave them an answer from a different language and a different reality. Well, let me put it this way. Jesus changes the perception of the moment to the reality of the moment. Because Jesus knows reality. In fact, he's the only one in this story that knows reality. And so he's changing the perception to get on the same page with reality. Let me show you what's actually going on here, everybody who's watching. What you thought was going on isn't actually what's going on, Pharisees. You thought I was on trial. I'm not on trial, and you can't put me on trial. In fact, by my statement, by refusing to answer your A or B question, I'm actually putting you on trial. His verdict is really a judgment on the accusers. Jesus changes who is on trial. They tried to come and put him on trial, and he wouldn't play their game. I'm not the one on trial here. You are. Now the roles have switched. Because what this little line does is it forces the accusers now to have to make a choice. They tried to trap Jesus and put him in a corner, but now they have to make a choice. And here's, here's their dilemma now that Jesus has said that. The very law of Moses that they were using to condemn her, Jesus turns the same law of Moses on them. See, because in the same law of Moses that would have commanded her or had the ability for her to be stoned, in the same law of Moses, in the same Pentateuch where they got that law, is the same law that requires anyone gets a fair trial. This is not a fair trial. And they know that. So they're breaking one law there. The other thing that the law of Moses condemns is partiality or conspiracy in matters of capital offense. That if there's any conspiracy or partiality being shown for someone who could be put to death, that act of conspiracy or partiality is also condemned. How do we know that they're showing partiality or showing conspiracy? It's very easy. It's very simple. Where's the dude? You can't commit adultery by yourself. So where's he? They've clearly chosen sides already, and they have not brought all parties to the table. This is a setup. And also, like we just studied, that the, the seventh commandment, that you shall not commit adultery, any good God-fearing Jew knew that it's not get as close to the line as possible. It's actually way farther into your heart that the commandment is speaking into. And Jesus explains that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, let me explain to you the law of God and how the law of God was always intended. It's not just don't commit adultery. It's actually don't even lust over someone who's not your spouse. I'm actually concerned with your heart. And so Jesus is saying, look, the seventh commandment that she is breaking, should we apply the depth of that law to you? You've clearly broken some of the judicial process here. You haven't given her a fair trial. You've shown partiality in capital offense. What about the law and it's speaking into your heart? Do you want the full weight of the law to come back on you? If you want to do this, Pharisees and teachers of the law, and by the law of Moses, you're right, she's guilty. She is guilty. If you want to do that, then the same law of Moses is going to be applied to you in all of its fullness. Do you want to do that? Because if we start applying the full weight of the law on you, you will be just as naked and exposed as this woman. See, the New Testament tells us that the law of God, this is, this is a category shifting statement. But it's in the Bible. I'm not making this up. That the law of God was given initially to increase the trespass. Meaning this, the law of God was given primarily, first off, so that when people read it 
and understood what it required, they would immediately say, I'm not doing so well. The law of God was given to increase the trespass for the reader. If you think you're doing well, if you think you're actually achieving and obeying the law of God in all of its facets, you haven't understood what the law requires of you. The law was given to increase the trespass. The law was given to give clear lines and clear markers that we are all guilty. And see, this is the, what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are doing. This, this is the very definition of hypocrisy, and it's why the world is so fed up with the church. Because holding others under the microscope of the law while failing to realize that we are just as guilty under the same law is hypocrisy. Maybe we're guilty in different ways, but not on different terms. That to hold up the law and command for everybody to submit to that law without actually submitting to the weight of the law for the self is hypocrisy. So let me ask you this question. Who do you love to condemn? Is it your spouse? Is it your boss? Is it your political opponents? Who would you love to see exposed for the sinner and fraud that they are? Now let me ask you this as bluntly and as gently as possible. Whoever came to mind in that question, and if it's nobody, then nice to meet you, Jesus, okay? But whoever came to line in whoever came to mind with that question, is it possible that the very principles and standards by which you condemn them, if we turned those on you and shine the flashlight into your soul, we would find the same grime and the same guilt? Is that possible? Maybe in different ways, but not in different terms. Meaning this, and Francis Schaeffer, who's a theologian of the last generation, said it this way. I've used this example before. Um, but if, if you were to wear around your neck a tape recorder your whole life, and the only time, you guys know what a tape recorder is? Okay. Um, if you had the voice memo app on your phone, okay, and the only time that the voice memo app started recording, and it was around your neck the entire, your entire life, the only time that the voice memo app started recording was when you gave a law or an expectation for how people should live, okay? It's the only time it ever recorded you. Your own law, your own standards. I can't believe they did such and such. Why can't people just, why can't she just, why can't he just, right? And then at the end of your life, all that God did was played back your own standards for people and then asked you, how did you live up to your own standards? We would all fail. Not even talking about what the law of God requires, which is, is, is real, but what about just your own standards? Is it possible that you're a hypocrite with just your own standards for people? Jesus gives this analogy in the Sermon on the Mount. It's painful. I, I hate unpacking um, illustrations and allegories from Jesus because they're nearly infinite in their depth. When he says to you, um, before you go get the speck out of your brother's eye, Get the log out of your own eye. I, I pondered uh, that image some this week, and it is, it is devastating. Because, first of all, the size of those two things, like speck is like dust mite, and log is like, you know, banging into walls a around you with the issues that you've got. 
Now, you may be right about the speck in their eye. You may actually be able to see the speck in their eye. You may not be incorrect about what they're doing wrong. But the moment you forget that you have a log in your own eye, you're not allowed to deal with their speck. And is it possible, this is scary, is it possible that the speck in other people's eyes around you came from the log in your eye? Like you banged into them so many times with your log that now they're reacting like you react? Have you forgotten to look in the mirror lately? And I don't just mean like, yeah, 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 like I know I'm, I know I'm not perfect, I know I've got my shortcomings, I know I've got my flaws. But seriously, is it possible that you are just as heinously guilty as the people that you love to condemn? Is that possible? How often parents have you ever tried to break your children's defiant will by the force of your own defiant will? How many times, children, have you judged and hated your parents' self-righteousness because you can see something about them that you think they're blind to, and because you can see it, you think you're better than them? How often, spouses, do you condemn your spouse's issues of fear or insecurity because what's really going on is you are afraid and insecure that they may always be that way? How many times in the last political season have you judged across the line, whatever side you're on, for something that the other side doesn't tend to, but if we were to turn that in on you, your own views and convictions would not uphold the same standards that you call the other side to? Because that's what Jesus does here with one line. One line, he does this. This is the mastery of answering purple on an A and B question. I mean, he totally changes the paradigm. Speck and logs, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's literally saying, you can throw a stone. You are allowed to throw a stone. Before you do that though, just one question. One, one just brief thought before you do that. Take a real hard, honest look and make sure you are not a hypocrite when you start throwing. Make sure the log in your eye isn't blinding you to the speck in theirs. Make sure that the log in your eye hasn't wounded a bunch of people around you before you start throwing stones. Jesus will not have it. He won't let it happen. His kingdom of priests, the priesthood that he has called us to, he will not let us throw stones. He will not let us condemn without looking in the mirror first and not a glance. So that's how Jesus handles the Pharisees. Throw a stone. As long as you're without sin, you can throw a stone. So it says in there that one by one they walked away, starting with the oldest, which I find very interesting, that maybe the more you live, the more you know how much of a hypocrite you can be and are. It's one of the joys of aging. I actually found it very interesting too, reading some of the original language. Um, we don't have to get into any of this. I just found it comical and maybe piercing. Uh, the term in there when it says starting with the oldest, it's actually where we get the name for our denomination. You may not know this, but it's a Presbyterian church. Presbyter, presbytery, Presbyterian comes from presbyter, which means elder. And so literally the word here in the passage is and then they, one by one, they began to walk away, starting with the Presbyterians. 
which I thought, that's hard to hear. <laughs> Would that be true of us? Anyway. So let's return and see how he handles this woman. Everyone's left. And then this woman, remember, she's naked, most likely. The Bible doesn't say that, but because of how it describes how she was caught and literally, I mean, maybe she grabbed the bed sheet on the way out. But regardless, she's exposed and full of shame. Standing here, dragged into all of our worst nightmares. This woman is being used by everyone in the story except Jesus. She's being used by the man she was sleeping with, even if she was willfully there. And she's being used by the Pharisees for their trap and their game. But she's not being used by Jesus. She's being loved by Jesus. Jesus is certainly concerned with ending the courtroom scene that the Pharisees tried to put him in. He's certainly concerned with that. He certainly had to hold a mirror up for them to see. He without sin cast the first stone. But he's also acutely concerned with her. The shepherd's heart is on full display here, and we see it in a few ways. The first way we see it is this. Before he even says anything to her, I want you to see Jesus the shepherd, Jesus the tender shepherd, how he's dealing with this woman before he even says anything. Remember him uh, being asked the question, what do you say about the law of Moses? What's your answer, A or B? And he starts drawing in the sand. And we're not sure what he wrote, but go to that, literally go to that scene in your mind. Like, woman's been dragged, everyone's looking at her, Jesus has been asked a question, and then Jesus bends down over the side and starts drawing in the sand. Remember the tension of that moment. Remember the intensity of that courtroom scene that they've dragged everybody into. And then Jesus turns and starts drawing on the ground. And Jesus knows that by drawing on the ground, he is bringing attention on himself that draws attention away from her. She is not the focus anymore. And so even if for a brief moment, the seething judgment of the crowd and the Pharisees there's a momentary relief for this woman of, at least they're not looking at me right now. Do you realize how tender and powerful this is? Do you realize what he's doing for her in real time? Like Jesus knows reality, right? He knows what she's going through. He knows what is on the table and what matters in this moment. This woman is covered in shame and exposure and guilt. She is loathing herself right now. And Jesus enters her shame like physically enters her shame with her by saying all the disdain that's on you right now, all the hatred, can you imagine getting dragged out? Can you imagine what they did to her? Can you imagine the pain of this moment? And she's being dragged out, I'm sure, screaming and full of tears. And then Jesus, just for a moment, pulls all the disdain off of her. He says, I'll take it. I'll take all that seething disdain from the crowd and I'll take it for a minute. All the rage and all the hatred, I'll wear it for you. She is literally experiencing this man, Jesus, bear the brunt of her iniquities and carry her disdain. Or as Isaiah says, surely he has borne our grief and our sorrows and our iniquities. I'll take the disdain off of you, woman, by wearing it myself. He does that for her in real time. And so then Jesus is, is you know, they're persistent in the, in the question, and he says that one line, he without sin cast the first stone, and everybody walks away. And then get this picture. He's already like taken the shame and the disdain off of her, and he's carrying it now for her in public. And then 
Everybody leaves, and imagine the intimacy of this moment, because what he just said, this is so powerful, he without sin cast the first stone, everybody leaves. Everybody leaves except one dude. Jesus is still there, meaning Jesus could throw a stone. He without sin cast the first stone, everybody leaves except Jesus. Jesus had every right to throw a stone at her, and what does he do? Listen to the power of these words that Jesus speaks to her at the end. It says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, this is verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. So the first thing that he says to her right there, where are your accusers? Has anyone condemned you? He, he, he's, he's, he knows the answer to that question, right? He's, not, he doesn't, he's like, wait, where did everybody, I don't, I don't, is anybody here? He's not confused about, is anybody still left? Jesus knows that no one from the crowd is there to condemn her. And here's part of what he's saying to her by asking her that question, is anybody here left to condemn you? Here's part of what he's doing. He's telling her, you know, sister, no one here has a sin that's more heinous than yours. Your sin is not more heinous than theirs. Meaning, your sin doesn't disqualify you from this community. Because no one in this community can look at you on judgment anymore for what you've done. They can't condemn you because they are no better than you. And so part of what he's doing by asking her that first question, like where are your accusers, is he's restoring her from the isolation that comes with shame. He's saying, you're not alone. Because their sin is just as bad as yours. There is no hierarchy of issues in my people There is no way for people to look down on other people. They're not here because they can't condemn you because they're just as bad as you. But then Jesus says to her, not only can the community not condemn you, but I, the one that could condemn you, I don't condemn you either. So how could Jesus do that? How can he just let her off the hook? How can he let her go? How can he take one who is clearly guilty of breaking the seventh commandment and the law of Moses and tell her that there is now no condemnation for her. How can he do that? Is Jesus just, um, he loves to kind of skirt corners and like, hey, I'm sure this was a mistake, so just don't let it happen again. How can he actually, what he did in real time, hold the tension of Jewish orthodoxy and hold the tension of loving sinners? How can he do that? Well, if you remember earlier with the Pharisees, remember what we said. Jesus changes who is on trial. Remember that? They came to put Jesus on trial and he turns and puts them on trial. Jesus was the one they were trying to entrap in a courtroom, but he wouldn't let that happen and he puts the accusers on trial. Well, in the same way, but a little bit differently, in the same vein though, Jesus changes who is on trial for this woman. See, the law of Moses says that you're on trial and you're guilty, woman. The law of Moses says you can't stand on the law and its demands and it will crush you and you cannot hide from it. But the gospel of Jesus comes to us and says that Jesus has changed who is on trial by literally taking your place. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. The gospel changes who is on trial. 
It takes you off the stand and it puts Jesus on there. Not because he was guilty, but he bore your guilt for you. Jesus gets condemned and you go free. And that's so real now. That so is what has happened, biblically speaking. You are literally not on trial anymore. That's what the gospel says. The trial is over. The gavel has swung and Jesus was condemned and you were declared righteous. And it is over. The verdict is in. The trial is over. It doesn't matter what you've been caught in. It doesn't matter what you're exposed in. It doesn't even matter how guilty you are. Like this woman. If you're in Christ, there is no more trial. The trial is over. And the gavel has swung. Your future trial verdict is already in. When you stand before the judge and he plays back the voice memos or he plays back the Ten Commandments and he plays back the requirements of his standards and of his law and then he asks, how do you plead? Here's what the Christian says. I plead Jesus. I plead Jesus and that verdict came in a long time ago. Innocent, righteous, justified. And so, as one who has been set free, hear what Jesus says to free people. As free people, listen to what he says to this woman. He says to the woman, you're not condemned from your community. You're not condemned from me. The trial has been switched and I was condemned. I will be condemned for you. You are free to go. And listen to what he says. Go and leave your life of sin. Now, that's difficult in every area of life. That's especially difficult in areas of sexual sin. Leaving a life of sexual sin is painful. Oftentimes there's addiction at work, there's trauma at work, there's stories at work. It is a very difficult thing to do what Jesus just said. So here's what I would, I would just encourage you with. That Jesus is calling you to leave your life of sin. He absolutely is not... Um, he doesn't skip around or skimp on the law and what it requires and what it calls God's people into. But would you trust this Jesus who's calling you into obedience? Because listen to how he's calling you into obedience. The call for this woman, the call is from the one who has borne her shame and borne our shame and carried it to the grave. Leaving your life of sin is the call, get this, to live into who you really are now. Like, live into the identity that is really you. This, your sin has given you an identity. Your addiction, your sexual brokenness, your sexual misdeviancy has given you an identity. And Jesus is saying, leave your life of sin. I'm actually calling you to step into your truest identity. That's not who you are anymore. Priests don't leave our life of sin to prove ourselves on trial. We leave our life of sin because the trial is over. So Jesus is saying, the trial's done. You're justified. You cannot ever get unjustified. I don't condemn you for anything you've ever done or for anything you may do. The trial is over. Now leave your life of sin. Not leave your life of sin and then we'll see about that trial. The order of this is, is critical for the Christian to understand. I don't condemn you. I never have condemned you and I never will condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. So Christian, if you need motivation, especially in this area, if you need motivation for, and, and, and courage to do this, leave your life of sin as one who has already been set free, not one who is trying to get free. 
Leave, one, leave your life of sin as one who is no longer on trial, but one who has already heard the verdict that the trial is over. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so tender with this woman in her shame. You're so um, even harsh with these Pharisees and their self-righteousness. And so wherever we fall on that spectrum, whatever part of the story um, we need to be struck by, would you do that? We may need to experience the tenderness of your mercy in real time. We may need to actually see you and experience you bearing our disdain. And we may need to be convicted of our own self-righteousness and our own ability to pick up stones. But all of us are called into Um, believing that the trial is over and leaving our life of sin as your priests. And so would you guide us in that now, we pray in your name. Amen.